Hi, and welcome to We Go Way Back, the podcast that goes back in time to help better understand today. I'm Alex Jones. I'm Kit Heron. And I'm Tom Gordon-Martin. And for this episode, Kit takes us to the Soviet Union, where he investigates one of history's most enduring and disturbing unsolved mysteries. tragic deaths of nine young mountaineers on a remote peak in Russia's northern Urals in 1959 has long captured the imagination of adventurers, researchers and the conspiracy-minded. Why did the experienced hikers, led by Igor Dyatlov, camp for the night in such a dangerous place? Why did they leave the tent in a snowstorm? And why did some of them end up with major internal injuries? A controversial 2020 Russian investigation found that an avalanche caused the mountaineers to flee the tent in terror. But a new book by long-term investigator Teodora Hajiska claims to have shed fresh light on the events of 1st of February 1959. I spoke to Teodora to get her perspective on the Dyatlov Pass incident. Before we get on to your theory, can you give an outline of what is known about the incident? It is a very unique mystery, and the more I read about it, I think this is going to become not just Siberia's coldest case. I, I believe that such uh, weird circumstances that overlapped on actually three plots overlapped on top of each other, they created such a mystery that this is going to grow bigger and stronger and getting more lively uh, by the year. This is, this is what happened. 62 years ago, a hikers group of 10 people from Svredlovsk, now Ekaterinburg, uh, headed to Northern Urals on a winter trek to go to a peak called Otorten which uh, wasn't ascended in winter. They wanted to uh, dedicate this to the 20, uh, 21st uh, Congress of the party, but actually that was normal to dedicate something to something, so to be allowed to go and given the equipment and everything. So they had it there, they have done this before, they were very well prepared, they knew what they're doing. Of course, people argue that all of the, the skis, the equipment, the tent, everything was so old that they were not, not equipped with radio sets and stations uh, to have communication, but that was normal. A lot of groups were also in the area. Okay, so what happened? They didn't come back and a massive search was launched that was unprecedented. This is very important for the mystery. Usually a lot of uh, missing people in the mountain, they were never found or even if they were found, if the bodies didn't display any signs of foul play, they were just cleaned up, uh, examined by a coroner and uh, often buried right there in the nearest cemetery to where the incident happened. This, this was very normal for mountain incidents. In our case, we have a telegram to Khrushchev, we have a party, 
Congress that same year, we have a lot of attention in Ekaterinburg. So there was a lot of noise and a noise around the disappearance of this group. So they made a massive search with all of the, it's like the Valkyrie coming from Ekaterinburg, I mean, from Svredlovsk, and they were going with Air Force and uh, uh, all of the Ural Polytechnic uh, Institute where the hikers were from was going, uh, sending search group after search group. So it was a boiling uh, search, massive search operation. How long till they found the bodies? Now, they found the tent three weeks or most uh, close to a month after uh, their death, uh, or maybe two weeks after they were due back. So two weeks after they were known to have disappeared, the tent was found in a place where it shouldn't be. It's not according to their plan. It was found in, on a ridge where there were very strong winds. Uh, it's uh, very uncomfortable and not smart. But the tent was found and it was actually uh, up. It was uh, holding up. So they, they, they found the tent. It was cut from inside. Mm -hmm. That's uh, very strange. It was cut from inside big openings like doors, two big openings. So, uh, and then they saw footprints, which because of the rare um, weather conditions, when you step on the snow, especially if you're not wearing shoes, so your feet are kind of warm, it compacts and melts the snow down. And if the temperature drops a lot after that, it freezes the snow and the wind can blow the loose snow around the footprints. So they protruded like pillars. And this is how they were photographed by the investigators. So you have footprints leading from the tent down to the ravine on the slope of the mountain. But the footprints show a very orderly uh, march down. So they went down to lit the fire to uh, actually survive the night. And this is how they were found. <clears throat> After finding the tent and everything inside, shoes, uh, jackets, uh, everything was inside the tent. They followed the, foot, the footprints down and they found the first two bodies under a cedar. They were slightly powdered by the snow. You think that after a month uh, there, they will be covered with more snow, but no, they were just covered. They were basically not covered at all. They were in strange poses. They were as if dragged, they were repositioned and they were bare skin was showing. They were so naked that their legs were just you, you could see the skin on the on the photos and their uh, the little clothes they had were torn then they found three more bodies uh, on the way back to the tent they were in poses uh, indicative as if they were trying to get back to the tent so it looked like they lit the fire uh, two of them died their friends took some of their clothes and start going back to the tent. This is what it looked like when they were found, five of the bodies were found at the end of February. And this is just the first part. Then we have four more bodies missing. So how long did it take to find the rest of them? Three months passed by and uh, the, the snow was too deep. Nothing else was found. The, the searchers were still camping there. 
And when the spring came in May, the snow started melting down. They found the last four bodies. And then basically the case was uh, already had a, uh, a decision to be closed that they died of a hurricane, a strong wind that, I don't know, sucked them from the tent, but not their socks and shoes. I don't know how that happened, but this is what the party decided that it must have been a strong wind because the wet, this is all there is on the ridge, a strong wind. But the last four bodies had such uh, little injuries that this is not possible, but it didn't change the case. They still closed it. The last four bodies, three of them were with injuries that they couldn't survive more than 20 minutes, according to the coroner, after the trauma. They had broken ribs, flailed chests, uh, smashed rib cages. I'm talking about two fracture lines, seven ribs uh, flattened. Um, also caved in skull in one of them. They couldn't have moved or be conscious after these injuries. Also, for some strange reason, which is one of mine, uh, it's uh, very strange to me, is the lead investigator ordered radioactive testing of the clothes of the last four bodies, not of the first five, just the last four, and they came back radioactive. And he closed the case the day after the, re the results were released. Then the rest of the um, hikers who were uh, who died from hypothermia, they also had minor uh, injuries, but not little. They had bruises, scratches, uh, the all kind of uh, external signs of as if they were fighting something, someone, they were making their way through something. They were actually uh, having, having some struggle with mm -hmm. something. So nothing makes sense. People are found there, uh, radioactive, uh, cut, the tent is cut from inside, then walking slowly, then suddenly trying to survive and running from something. Also the cedar tree had the branches broken five meters high as if someone was climbing up and then fell and broke the branches. And it was uh, this, uh, the branches were broken on the side uh, looking towards the tent. So if you start just looking at it as, as the face value of what it looks like, as if they were, they decided for some reason to spend the night on the top of the ridge in minus 40 Celsius with winds that the leader of the group describes in the diary as coming from the engine of airplane take that is taking off. But there, is, there is more to it. It's everything I have told you, it's not even scratching the surface because yeah. then even if you read the, the case files, you see a lot of dis uh, discrepancies. Even the date of when the tent was found is confusing according to different sources. And this is what the case is. It's every, you, you keep reading and it gets weirder and weirder by every testimony. At this point, I should say that the 1959 investigation found that the deaths were caused by a compelling force, probably a strong wind of some kind. The most recent official Russian investigation, led by Andrei Kuryakov, which finished last year, found 
that it was an avalanche that caused their deaths. Is that right? But we shouldn't call it official investigation because the prosecutor's office did not support uh, Kuryakov on his uh, announcement mm -hmm. of his conclusion of the case. He actually did it without approval of his superiors and he was uh, sacked. He was removed. So this is not official investigation. The official investigation didn't announce and then they're not obliged to announce what their findings and conclusions are. But everything that, because Kuryakov was the one that um, led the preliminary investigation, it's not official one. You have official investigation only if you find um, a criminal case or you you know you open investigation that wasn't a, that was a preliminary research mm -hmm. and he got the green light to do it and all he did is use some modern methods to uh, basically confirm where the photos were made in 59 because all we have are the testimonies and photos without gps coordinates without anything so the only uh, way to judge uh, uh, where exactly the tent was, was by uh, Kurekov did, uh, uh, he, he went with some instruments and judging by the, the peaks of the nearest mountains uh, where they appear on the old photos, he decided that the tent was, uh, he pinpoint uh, a place where uh, it's 114 meters away from where it actually was, because everybody knows where, there are a lot of people involved and make their own research. And the way they do it is by going every year, winter and summer there, and they look at any items and uh, any anything that they could find. And they compare these photos for 60 years now. And there is nothing that Kurekov did more than them besides digging up in the archives documents that we uh, no one had access to. There's been a plethora of other theories including UFOs, a yeti, infrasound that made the mountaineers go mad and leave the tent, and military tests gone wrong. Do you find any of these compelling? So the military test theory says that there were these um, meteorological balloons and then a rocket, uh, by mistake, uh, destroyed the meteorological balloons. Actually, the hikers even were supposed to launch these meteorological balloons, but because they were kamikaze, but the rocket destroyed these balloons. So they were uh, exposed to the poisonous gas that the meteorological balloons were filled in and they died. This is mm -hmm. one theory. A very big three volume book is written based on that. Military tests. Yes, the, um, the memory of the Atlov Group Foundation this is their uh, leading theory is the rocket so-called rocket theory they say that something went terribly wrong and pieces of rocket fell down since the military knew that they have caused the death of the the group they uh, picked them up uh, by the you know helicopters and they dropped the bodies from high to that's how they broke the ribs this is how they broke the branches of the of the trees and why, if you want to hide something, why would you leak uh, diaries and photos and make all this case so public? 
I, I believe that you can do a much better job of hiding and concealing by just uh, burying them right there on the spot. So you've got this new book out. What's your own theory about what happened? You have to keep your mind open. You have to admit that you cannot explain the facts. Not just what we have are uh, is a box of pieces of um, of a puzzle. So you can't make a theory out of three corners and one piece in the center. You have to put all of the pieces together in one picture. It, we have a lot of facts, but we don't have the big picture. And then when when you're told something that can explain everything, you have to keep open mind that this case is weird mm -hmm. on its own. So everything is possible. And I'm not talking extraterrestrial or something like that. You just, if what you see doesn't make sense, like they them coming out of the tank, cutting their way out and going bare feet down the slope. If that doesn't make sense, then it didn't happen this way. And no matter how the, the absurd it sounds that someone moved their tent, you should be at least keep your mind open to hear why would any anyone do this why the mystery was uh, was born in in 59 because someone that didn't want and wanted them dead without any motive to kill them without knowing these people without knowing anything about their track or uh, anything to do with uh, their mission didn't want to get involved in their death. They were found and they were moved, but not only moved. So far, if they die by something and then someone finds them and moves them, we have two plots that overlap on top of these uh, poor souls. But we have a third plot that the party that found them initially didn't think any anything uh, endangered them that they they could be involved or anything. They just did what's normal for these uh, circumstances for this situation. They found the bodies. They brought them to the morgue. They cleaned them up. They prepared them for funeral, and they started looking for their identity. They said they're dead people. We want to find out who they are, and bury them eventually after the families come and see them and this is where the weird twist of events happen instead of <laughs> we're the first to explain the date on the cover of the case files because this is this mystery no one had addressed so far there is a, a document inside the case files which is a testimony of someone in a place that it's not on the route of the group asking for the weather conditions in the, at the beginning of February. And this document is dated February 6th and the group was due back on February 15th, the, the, the earliest. Mm. So we have a week earlier, somebody started investigating to me, that's, that says it that they were looking for someone else or someone knew that someone died 
earlier than the tent was found. So there is a cover up on some, on, on some level, but mm. it was so badly covered that it's not a top level. It's something in between that some amateurs did something sloppy in a hurry and they were interrupted and they created such a mess that we're trying to figure it out till this day. Finally, why do you think the Dyatlov Pass mystery remains so compelling? The group, the hikers, they're so charismatic, talented and young and uh, uh, able life in front of them. Uh, we have all of the ingredients of a mystery plot, so much evidence that you can use them like Lego pieces and build your own mystery case. That's about all we've got time for. Thank you so much. To get hold of Teodora's book, Hype 1079, go to her website, diatlovpass.com, or search Hype 1079 on Amazon. Teodora, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome, Keith. Thank you very much, Kit, for that. Um, for me, that was a story I had never heard of before, so I learned a great deal. How did you think the interview went? Was it a, as you expected? Is it the popular analysis of the story, or what else do you know? It was, it was a very fascinating interview, and it brought up a lot of things that, although I obviously did know about this beforehand, I hadn't come across. Um, and uh, Teodora's theory, which she outlines in her book, is, um, you know, from what I heard of it in that interview, is certainly very interesting. And I could believe parts of it. But I think it's important for us to note that there are many other theories um, done by many other people, because this has attracted a huge amount of interest in the 62 years since it happened. And um, the kind of most widely accepted theory is the avalanche theory that that was what led to their deaths. So it's kind of important. That we're, we're which, does, which does seem to be the most likely, doesn't it, really? Um, I, I wonder if the reason that even though people seem to want to lash out against the... That's the whole sort of basis of conspiracy in the first place, isn't it? They want to lash out against the official narrative. And I feel like a lot of this could be a symptom of that to some degree. It's like people lashing out against the JFK thing because it's official and because they think it might be a symptom of something darker. Um, I think there might be something involved there just because... It's more exciting in every way, pretty much, to think that some of these more morbid, crazy, uh, even supernatural versions of events are true, as opposed to this, you know, natural occurrence gone wrong. Yeah, and I think, I think it kind of ties in with a sort of natural and, you know, justified suspicion of uh, transparency in Soviet bureaucracy or the lack thereof. Uh, and and you know, you think of like Chernobyl, for example, but. Uh, as Theodora highlighted in her interview, uh, this actually was quite a thorough investigation. Um, and, um, you know, it's not like they left all sorts of stones unturned. They just didn't have the technology that we have now that enables us to produce all these kinds of theories. Um, so I don't think it was the case that it was a kind of official cover up that I, I, that doesn't, um, you know, that, that doesn't seem likely to me. Kid is what does this story have or what role does this story play in present day Russia? Is it something that 
is still debated? Is it something that's brought up often? Like, how come you came across it? Uh, to be honest, for me, I think I came across it just through sort of some sort of Wikipedia hole. I don't, I, I, I am interested in Russian culture and, and history and so on, but I don't think I came across it that way. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's an especially um, widespread thing uh, more so in Russia than elsewhere. I mean, it, it might be just because obviously it took place in Russia, but I, I don't think it holds a particularly um, kind of uh, huge place in like Russian cultural imagination um, that you might expect it to. Which is maybe because even though Siberia or this sort of wilderness is a really mysterious region to them, it's even more so to us. And I think that's a huge part of the draw of the whole thing. It just seems like uncharted territory. And there is something about the human psyche which it likes to think that bizarre occurrences take place just out of our reach. Um, so which is why I think conspiracy theories, for me at least, are of this nature. They're not really depressing per se. They're kind of exciting and like crazy. Things do happen that we are unaware of. And that's quite like in a weird way comforting. I don't know to know that just things outside of the realm of our understanding take place. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think, I don't know why, but for me, the killing of JFK, that is more exciting. That um, Because it kind of it, it has that sense of opening all sorts of um, doors of possibilities about, you know, the deep state. What did, what did the FBI do? What did the CIA do? What were, you know, what were the Russians doing? Whereas with uh, Dyatlov Pass, like, it just seems like, incredibly tragic that these nine young people died and, and you know as Theodora highlighted in that interview you know they were these kind of young um, people full of potential they had all their, their you know their entire lives in front of them um, and they just died in this really awful way um, however they died. Kit I haven't done the research on Theodora that I could do and I wanted to know what is her role within the story now and her book? Is she just keeping the story alive by retelling it? Is she seeking some sort of conclusion? Does she have uh, an objective? Well, I don't think she's. I don't think she's seeking any kind of conclusion. I think she said that kind of part of her whole philosophy in, in uh, investigating this stuff is to keep an open mind, as she said in that interview. You know, like when new facts emerge, you know, your theories have to adapt with them. I think her book um, has a specific theory, um, both about the way that the nine people died and also about why they were found in such unusual positions, which we won't get, go into again. But I think that's kind of where she's coming from in terms of the book. It's interesting, the mindset, isn't it, of knowing that you will never know, but still wanting to know all the details anyway. I don't. I can't really identify with that. It's. It, I wouldn't want to say it seems like a waste of time because I'm fascinated by it still, and I know I'll never know. But it's interesting, isn't it? Just for the sake of the story, it's it's basically an obsession, really, isn't it? I think all these conspiracy theories are fundamentally obsessions. Well, she said in that interview, like I, um, you know, I know that I'm going to be researching this for the rest of my life, and like, I I agree with you because it's a really interesting. I've been interested in it for you know, a few years on and off, but it's not an obsession to me. I'll occasionally, you know, remember the Dyatlov Pass 
tragedy and I'll go back to the Wikipedia page or I'll go back to YouTube. But like what moment do you just remember it? Like, ah, yeah, no, genuinely that does happen. Like it doesn't happen with you guys, so like there'll be a thing and you're it's interesting, but then you kind of you'll forget about it for a bit and then you'll come back to it and you'll kind of look at something. You rediscover the whole thing all over again. Yeah, but it's not it's not an all-consuming kind of passion like it is for these people, it seems. No, I just wanted to say off yeah, off the back of your point that that's why I'm so interested almost whilst the story obviously is the the hook, I think the thing that's just holding me is like Teodora's commitment to it now. I think that's fascinating. I think it's also true. It's important that conspiracy theories can be quite healthy as long as they are also treated with, you know, skepticism. Like as long as, you know, obviously the, the big thing that's kind of in the news recently is the QAnon sort of conspiracy or even if you can even describe it as that. Um and I think it's quite a sort of nuanced point, but like, I think in the future, we may see um, kind of more official um, bodies or even social media companies start to try and shut down public debate or only present one official version of events by using the kind of idea that this is the, the you know, there are dangerous conspiracy theories that have to be kept out of the kind of forum of public discussion if that makes sense and i think it's i think it's kind of maybe important that we that we don't allow that to happen i suppose mm, there's a lot to think about when you start discussing conspiracy theories um but kit thank you that was a different type of episode to what we're used to but equally interesting um hope everyone else enjoyed it and you'll hear from us next time cheers cheers cheers, cheers.